Um, all right, friends, welcome to the next episode of Professional Development. My name is Jim Mayers, and I teach 11th grade English in Boston, Massachusetts. Um, today, I'm extremely excited. This is a conversation I've been looking forward to for a while, ever since we uh, hopped on Facebook Messenger, but I'm thrilled today to interview Joseph Bonfiglio, my old 11th grade English teacher. Um, so, Mr. Bonfiglio, thanks for coming on and, and you know, giving some time. My pleasure, Jim. You know, I've been uh, following you for a while here with all your uh, endeavors in education. It's uh, It's been fun to watch. Yeah. Um, one, so just, I don't know if you know this, one quick note that I wanted to share with you and then on the show. Um, I was scrolling back through uh, some of our messaging correspondence and then uh-huh. You sent me a message that stayed with me for a long time. I'm trying to find it here, but essentially when I, when I transitioned into the instructional coaching role with Teach for America, you sent me a Facebook message that basically said, you know, good for you, but <laughs> I hope you find your way back into the classroom because um, I know that you, you know, you'd been reading my blog a little bit and Hi you said to me that, you know, I can tell you're the kind of person who belongs in the classroom or, and, and I hope you find your way back and you were pretty clear about that. And just want to let you know that that has always sort of stayed with me and it's been in the back of my mind. And I appreciate you uh, sending me that message because I, I have found my way back into the classroom and I'm excited about it. And it's led to a lot of good things, including deciding to do this podcast. So I was excited to what, share that. What little school thing. are you teaching at in Boston? It's called Brook Charter Schools. It's in Mattapan. Um, uh-huh. It's right. Yeah, it's in Mattapan, right on the, the border of Dorchester. Um, I like it a lot. They they have a good uh, vision for humanities instruction. And it's a really supportive staff. So it's, I, uh-huh. it's going really well. Good, good, good. I was just in Boston uh, about two weeks ago. Yeah. We, uh, I went on a trip with my grand, grandson and uh, we're hitting all the historical places we could uh, to try to expose him to that because we were worried about his last school year. Yeah. And, and although he was in the classroom most of the time because it is Florida and Florida's a little crazy, but uh, they weren't doing a lot, you know, and uh, okay. we had taken him to DC, uh, I think two years prior to that, maybe three years. And he loved it. And he loved the history. And so we, we have taken it upon ourselves to make sure that he's as educated as possible in, in, in the world, not just, yeah. in, not just in the testing that he has to do for the state of Florida. Right. How uh, old is he now? He's 13 now. Okay. And how was your trip to Boston? Where did you all go? It was great. We, we went to, uh, we went, walked the Freedom Trail and okay. um, we went to, uh, Final Hall, we went to the aquarium, but we went also to Betsy Ross's house and oh, sure. Paul, Paul Revere's house and, uh, you know, did all those little historical things. So and, legend, uh, that's, that's fantastic. So I don't know if you remember this. I grew up in Lyme, but right. so I was in Lyme before I went into Hanover and I believe this is true because I don't think Mr. Murphy, I believe I got this from Mr. Murphy. That the that the old bell in Lyme, at the at the church at the top of the green there was 
apparently it was cast by Paul Revere and then it was replaced. It was replaced. Um, I want to say late 19th century, but I'm, I'm not too sure, but a, a legend has it that, that I've, I've told people not knowing if it's totally true, but. Hey, uh, it, it, from, from Murph's mouth to God's ear, you know, <laughs> that's what he, I think. If Murph says that, that is true. It's probably true. He has more integrity than most people I've ever met. I know. He was my next door neighbor growing up. So that was that was special. You know, he ran for president, too. I almost voted for yes, him. I know that. I know that. <laughs> I uh, He's been doing this thing online. Uh, did you know? And he did it for a whole year. Uh-huh. All these little tidbits about uh, Hanover, Norwich schools. and uh, And now he's assembling it as a book. And oh, that's fantastic. One fifth or something like that. It's like 120 years old. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So for anyone listening who doesn't know, Mr. Murphy was my next door neighbor and my history teacher in high school and, and, and taught with, with Mr. B here. So yeah, I'm sure yeah. you guys know each other yeah, very well. <laughs> I know. Um, so I'm interested in, I still am on the fence, right, by the way, by saying Mr. B or Joe, but I'll probably just do interchangeably. Whatever you want to do is okay with me. I'm a grown-up. Yeah. You're a grown-up. Um, I'm interested to hear you talk a little bit about your journey into the classroom. I know that you grew up in Brooklyn uh, and Long Island. So how did you enter into teaching? And let's start there. Well, you know, I, I picked my college based upon uh how much scholarship they gave me and who had the best basketball team. Sure. Uh, and so I went to Providence College okay. uh, because that was the, uh, the closest I could come to a free education. Yep. Um, when I got there, I, I was a poli-sci major and I didn't like that. Didn't take me long to figure that out. Uh, so I switched to history and it was too much detail. Uh, I didn't like that very much either, so I switched to English, uh, and I decided that I was going to skip all those stupid education courses, right? Because I'd rather take more English courses, and I took as many English courses as I could, and I graduated uh, with a degree in English, and could not get a teaching job, which was my plan uh, all along, because I didn't have any education credits, which yeah. was my own fault. Uh, so I decided I'd go to graduate school, but I've always, you may not believe this, Jim, but I've always been kind of a lazy guy. So, uh, I, I am too. I think, uh, I can resonate with that. So I didn't want to take the GRE or anything like that. So I looked for sneak arounds, ways to get into graduate school and get my degree in education without, uh, having to do anything special. So I found out that if I went to the school Hofstra University, which is a terrific school. Yeah. Uh, as a non-matric. And okay. I took 12 credits in my chosen field. Sure. And uh, get A's at all 12 credits that I could then petition to matriculate, which was just like signing a letter, you know? So that's what I did. And, okay. Uh, I, uh, and that's how I got, in, got my teaching degree and a master's from Hofstra, from Hofstra, uh, which allowed me to then go into the classroom. Okay. You know, my first teaching job was, however, uh, at a Catholic school, uh, 
I think I was paid $5,600 a year. And it lasted two years, and then they fired, fired me for uh, moral interpretive because okay. uh, I was divorced and I was remarrying. Uh, so they fired me, and uh, that was wow. a funny, funny conversation at the uh, at the uh, unemployment office. You know, uh, so why were you fired, Mister Montiglio? I got married. Uh, no, really, why were you fired? <laughs> I got married. Yeah, that's why. I said, I said, call up, call up the school. So the guy called up the school. I got. He says, I got this guy, Joe Montiglio. Here, he claims he was fired because he got married. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah. Okay. Okay, you got your unemployment. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was crazy. Uh, then I I spent a year applying for jobs, an entire year. Okay, uh, and I I applied to jobs in every state from Maine to Maryland. Uh, I don't know why I stopped at Maryland, but just I probably got tired of applying. That's the and end of the, the Eastern Seaboard, right there. Sort of, yeah. I took yeah. the first job I got, you know, which was in vermont at a little high school called green mountain union high school yeah uh, just you know 600 students seven through 12 uh but i got really lucky there what happened there uh the head of the english department with this guy uh charlie Kraft, or i like to call him sir charles uh and he took me under his wing immediately uh and it was funny because i did the interview with him and i he asked me a bunch of questions. I knew I botched, you know, like who wrote this and who did that. And, and uh, you know, I said, I don't know, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But two hours later, he called me up and said, you got the job because you were honest. You admitted, you didn't try to bull me. You just, you were honest. So uh, what he did was he had me team teach two classes with him. And he's a master teacher. He's just a great teacher. Uh, but went a different route than I did. And he kind of groomed me for two years, you know. At the end of those two years, he left. He went to teach in Maryland, and then he became a principal and a superintendent. Different path than me. Yeah. Not the path I wanted to be on. Uh, and I became the head of the English department. Uh, and I was there for 10, 10 years total, but, but he was, an indelible mark on my teaching. I still talk to him. Oh, you do? Yeah. Um, probably a couple times a week, just little things in passing. You know, that's and, great. You know, but he was a great teacher. Uh, and again, he and I had, had had a conversation about getting out of the classroom. And uh, he felt he could have more impact in administration. And I've never felt that way. Yeah. You know. My one foray into uh, pseudo administration was at Hanover, where I tried very hard to get the school to change to a portfolio based uh, graduation system. Okay. Where you get where you get credits, you know, by creating documents, by creating artifacts. Mm -hmm. And uh, as I had a move in there, uh, but. As soon as I left uh, in 2008, I, I had to leave because I had been ill for the last two years of my teaching and I just couldn't teach anymore. As soon as I left, they bagged it. You know? mm. uh, even my best friends, you know, bailed. <laughs> you know, so that was very disappointing to me. I thought that was really the way to go. Uh, 
but it was complicated and it was hard to make that transition. Yeah. Once you made the transition, you weren't really doing anything different than you were before. You were How do you mean? You're using the artifacts that you already had been creating in your classroom. Okay. To justify uh, meeting objectives. Mm -hmm. So like there'd maybe be 20 objectives for English, you know, and you would meet those objectives at various times during your four years uh, by creating these artifacts. Uh, and it looked good. I mean, when you, when you put together a portfolio like that, it looked wonderful. It really okay. showed what a school could do, you know? Uh, but that's neither here nor there. I, uh, like I said, I got very sick in 2006. I don't remember what year you graduated, but. Oh, seven. Yeah. I remember, I remember that was, um, I remember that happening yeah. and I was thinking about you a lot around that time. Yeah. And, uh, I, I, I almost died. I, uh, and I really didn't teach much in, in 07, 08. Yeah. I didn't, I did not know that. Yeah. I just, I, I came back at the end, uh, for a week or two, but I just, I, I had my colon removed and I couldn't function. Mm. And I had no energy. I was constantly anemic, you know, and uh, it was it was a, a scary time. Uh, but then I, I turned, you know, uh, diarrhea into gold, I guess. <laughs> you might say, because uh, when I left, I, I hooked up with uh, uh, the Upper Valley Teacher Training Institute, which I don't know what they're called now. They changed change their name every couple of years. And I did. Uh, I was a mentor teacher uh, through that. And that was a great year because uh, I was real low energy, but I, I could do what they wanted me to do. Okay. You know? And then I moved to Florida. Uh, and uh, I, the first year in Florida, I worked in uh, kind of like a reading recovery program, a federal program after school mm -hmm. for little kids, you know, uh, eight, nine, 10 year olds. Uh, and it was refreshing. You know, uh, I actually taught in the classroom that uh, George Bush was in when 9-11 uh, happened. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was, his name was on the classroom, picture on the wall, the whole nine yards. Huh. Uh, and, uh, and that was really good. And then, then I said, wait, I taught at a private school uh, for three years. Uh, that was affiliated with a sports academy. And that was horrible. It was just horrible because they really had no standards. Uh, and I taught there as long as I had to before my social security kicked in. Yeah. Then, I, then I quit, you know, I, uh, and that was, like I said, I was 62 at the time. And uh, I had tried getting into the public schools here in Florida, it was difficult. Uh, and uh, it wasn't really worth the effort. You know, I, the couple of times I taught, I had like 40 kids in a class. It was, uh, you know, again, it went against everything I knew about what makes a good classroom. Uh, but anyway, I taught at Green Mountain for 10 years and then I went to Hanover. I taught there for 21 years. Uh, yeah. And I, I went to Hanover for the money, to be honest with you. Sure. Uh, uh, I actually preferred, my preference was I was going to teach at uh, Woodstock with uh, Andrea Olson, who's a good uh -huh. friend of mine and had been for years. 
I, I took her uh, senior writing seminar. Yeah. I and, love uh, that she's, class. She's brilliant. Uh, she's yeah. a brilliant person, albeit, you know, crazy. Uh, in a good way. <laughs> yeah. in a, good a little way. bit. Yeah. Always in trouble. Uh, but she couldn't hire me because uh, they hired a theater teacher. At Hanover? And, no, at, at Woodstock. Oh, okay. They had a theater teacher. And she would only come on board. Uh, they, no, excuse me, I got it backwards. They hired a football coach, uh, and she—he would only come on board if his wife was hired as an English teacher. So she was top of the pay scale, hmm. as as was I, at that time. And um, they had two positions open, but the board told her she had to hire an intern that had been interning there. To get someone in at the bottom of the pay scale hmm. so uh i didn't get the job so hanover hired me at the last minute it was between me and a fellow named dan henry uh who's an interesting guy uh he was more a uh he was at mescoma mm -hmm. uh, and he was an all-star there he really was uh we didn't get hired until almost like august 1st wow left hanging you know uh i was afraid that i wasn't gonna have a job uh and i had two kids you know mm -hmm. so it was, it was uh it was tough you know but but the pay differential was i like tripled my pay mm -hmm. you know and that made my life so much easier not easy but easier than it was when i was at green mountain i was on i was on snap mm -hmm. <laughs> you know we qualified for free free cheese and milk, uh, even wow. though both of us were working. Uh, so it was uh, it was crazy. But I learned a lot at Green Mountain about how to work with kids who aren't going necessarily to college. Mm -hmm. uh, some of them had never even left the borders of their of their hometown, mm -hmm. and and I'm still close with a lot of those kids. And then at Hanover, of course. I learned how to deal with uh, more um, high-powered kids. I guess would be the best way to put it. Uh, not all, not all in a good way. Well, yeah, there's a lot of lot of privilege and and money and entitlement that I remember and, from Hannah. And stress and stress. And stress, on, yeah. On kids, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'll never forget. I had a conversation with one parent. I sent home a. Uh, report is as you probably remember i sent home a report on everybody mm -hmm. you know, they had those interim reports at hanover mm -hmm. and people would just send them out if you were doing badly you know i said that's stupid yeah i would send out a hundred and interim reports every semester mm -hmm. every quarter you know and uh i remember on this one kid i wrote uh, blah blah is doing very well in my class excellent work in my class he currently has an A minus, mm -hmm. and the parent took me to the to the mats. If A minus is excellent, what is what is A? You know, no, no <laughs> yeah, no. that wasn't the point. Right, that wasn't the point. I was praising your child's effort, yeah, and yeah. and his success, not not what made him uh, top of the class. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that was that happened to me a lot at Hanover. Yeah, where people were the parents were pushing for for grades, even more so than the kids. You know? Oh yeah, 
it was funny because what you know my recollections from Hanover as a, as a kid you don't see or know or understand some of the behind the scenes yeah. parent pressure that I uh, that you and I have now experienced you more so than I but um, I mean as long as I as long as I didn't bring home you know a C my parents just were very hands-off they were like all right good job that was it <laughs> yeah and I had the added the added uh, complication of having both my kids go to Hanover. Mm -hmm. uh, my son hated the fact that I was there. Yeah, he, he hated it. Uh, he would only acknowledge me if he needed the car keys or money. <laughs> you know? uh, my daughter loved the fact that I was there. Yeah, uh, she'd run up to me in the hall and give me a hug. You know, uh, and they were two very different kids. Yeah, you know? and, and that's okay. Uh, it's it's ironic that I actually spend a lot more time with my son than my daughter now. Uh, yeah, and and you know we've uh, we're we're better we're in a better place than we were when he was in high school. Sure. Uh, uh, and that was partially because I was there, partially because he's a pretty intense guy. Mm -hmm. you know? uh, the other good thing about about uh, Hanover for me was. I was able to teach that Shakespeare class. Uh, that that class changed my life. That's that is one of the classes that I think about and remember. It's really functions. There, you know, it, it's not the only one, but it's it's a very uh, prominent class for that really defined my archetype for what a great class is and what that space can mean. Sure, and and you know I. I I actually, I, I've had this conversation with uh, Andrew Heffernan. I don't know if you remember him, mm -hmm. but he was a, a, a driven guy, all A's, you know, uh, blah, blah, blah. But he also was into like the theater. Mm -hmm. And after my Shakespeare class, that, he decided that was going to be his goal. He was going to become an actor, mm -hmm. uh, not become a, an engineer or a doctor or something like that. And his parents are now kind of freaked out. Uh, but he, but he has been. He's been an actor all these years. He was in the Virginia Shakespeare Company, and he uh, he teaches uh, lessons online on Facebook and stuff. Sure. And basically, we we had that same conversation, you know. And I love Shakespeare. I love mm -hmm. the poetry of it. I love the uh, the the drama. I love the storylines. Everything. Mm -hmm. And. Uh, I had been interspersing it in my classes at Green Mountain, mm -hmm. uh, but but it but it had over. I was able to teach it in every class. Mm -hmm. There's a English death of a salesman. No, I mean, <laughs> Richard Venice. Excuse me. Yeah. Uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and that got me hooked up with the Folger Library. Okay. Uh, where I was a fellow at the Folger Library, uh, and I. That was a great experience. Spent the summer in DC, living at Georgetown, studying at the Folger with incredible master teachers. Yeah. And uh, learning all kinds of cool techniques and just enjoying myself, which then led to me writing a uh, American School Teacher Fellowship. And I got a sabbatical and I went and I uh, went to St. Andrews University for a year. Uh, for a is, semester. Actually. Is that in Scotland? Yeah. 
Yeah. And I researched Shakespeare, specifically Shakespeare, Shakespeare's education. You know, it's it's so interesting that you mentioned that because um, I have always been a little bit self-conscious about my own content knowledge because I've said I've really never met a teacher who knew more about what they were teaching than Mr. Bonfiglio or very few. And uh, now I understand because as a teacher day to day, I don't have, I, I, I read the novels and the texts that I'm teaching, but there's a real depth of knowledge that goes that, that I remember from you that I think goes beyond something that I, I have right now, but I, well, if it's any consolation, <laughs> I would put myself at the end of a list that includes Andrea Olson, sure. Steve Hackman, you know, uh, and any other number of Charlie Craft, any other number of people. Yeah. Uh, what I found was a niche, mm -hmm. a niche that I could use as a blanket across all my curriculums, mm -hmm. you know, and uh you know, the other thing that I've got going for me or had going for me is, is rapidity. I could do things fast, mm -hmm. you know, and I, I used to have to apologize all the time. I'll never forget I had a conversation with a female history teacher who will remain nameless. Uh, and she said to me, I just can't do it as good as you do it or as fast as you do it, Joe. And I used to always apologize for that. And I finally had, a, had like a cathartic moment. I said, how sad for you, <laughs> you know, yeah. because I shouldn't have to apologize for being competent at something. No teacher should ever have to right. apologize for being competent at something. Right. It's okay to be incompetent too. Mm -hmm. That's what I liked about Charlie Kraft when he nurtured me in those two years at Green Mountain. Mm -hmm. He let me fail mm -hmm. and helped me revisit the failure in a way that wasn't uh, punitive. Mm -hmm. It didn't make me feel that I had nothing to offer. That didn't take my confidence and just bash it on the ground. He made me use it as a learning experience mm -hmm. in a positive way. And, yeah. uh, and that was amazing. It was amazing that he was able to do that. Because if not for him, I might have quit after the second year. Right. Uh, it's, it's quite possible I might have. You know, that's one of my fears about Florida. Uh, Excuse me. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, Florida tried to change their education, their teaching system. Mm -hmm. They had such low, low, low pay. So now they have one of the highest entry pays in the country. Mm -hmm. But those teachers aren't staying more than three years. Right. They're all leaving. You know, uh, they made it more difficult. They, they took away tenure. They made it more difficult to, to actually have a pension, you know? And, and here I am, I'm like a 15 year teacher in the Florida system and I look and I haven't gotten a raise in five years mm -hmm. and I'm making like $3,000 more than the, the new teachers. Mm -hmm. So they, they take away the incentive from the older teachers as well. Uh, and then of course, they, they tied in with uh, Jeb Bush and uh, Bill Gates on this testing, 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 testing. Yeah. Program. 
and it's a complete failure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a complete failure. Uh, kids don't need to be tested in first grade for their mm-hmm. content knowledge. You know, right. they just don't. They can understand you being tested in, say, like uh, seventh or ninth, mm-hmm. you know, for some general touchstones. But, but uh, you know, it it never hits. Like we did that New Hampshire testing at Hanover. I remember and that. The, hist- the history department was always last. They were below average. Hmm. And the reason was because in all the other schools in New Hampshire, American history was a two-semester course. How many semesters of American history did you take? Uh, I remember it was with Prince, and I think it, I want to say it was one. I, I forget. No, you, you took three. Okay. Yeah, because we had the big, yeah, yeah, because we had the big paper. That's right. You took yeah. three semesters, and your third semester was 1940 to the present. Okay. And about a third of the questions on the state test or 1940 to the present. So so you take the test before, yeah. So our kids didn't have the general knowledge that the other kids had because they hadn't been exposed to it yet, uh, unless they were buffs on their own. I know? think that's why I said one, because I was specifically remembering that third semester. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and so it. Uh, that's why testing is often... Uh, you know, a false measure. Uh, I got my, I got my AP scores back the other day. Uh, everyone yeah. I know, they were so low. They were incredibly low. And, you know, I, I'm just sort of trying not to feel bad about them because you can't, I have, I have a lot to say, but there's, there's, there was, to me, you can't really measure an AP score on what happened during the pandemic, but yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I went, I went to a, uh, a workshop for three weeks one summer up at St. Johnsbury, mm-hmm. sponsored by AP. Uh, but I went there intentionally as a disruptor. Okay. <laughs> you know? uh, because it's a for-profit business. Oh, yeah. You know? Yep. And so I, I wrote, my shoes are Nike. This my first essay. My shoes are Nike. My jeans are Levi's. Uh, you know, and my and my English score is AP. You know, and yeah. it doesn't really mean much. We at the time were grappling with: should we have an AP English class? Uh, and the answer was no, mm. because our honors classes were more rigorous yep. than the AP classes. Yeah. Uh, and so, if our kids wanted to take the AP exam, we could teach them how to take it. Right. Yeah, I, I I distinctly remember having a one-on-one conversation with you about, you know, Mr. Bonfiglio, I've, do I, should I take, it was senior year, I think, and I looked at the book, and I was pretty confident that I, mostly because of the overall, the holistic uh, literature curriculum that I had been exposed right. to at Hanover, right. I was very confident that I could take and pass the AP Lit exam, sure, um, no problem, and I went up to you and said, should I should I do it and you said 
do you know where you're going to college? And I said, yeah. And you said, do you have your scholarships all lined up? And I said, yeah. And then you said, okay, so don't take it. You don't, you're going to pay a hundred bucks to take this test. You don't need to take the test. And that was, uh, that was the first time, not the first time, but I think a lot of students and families and parents have a hard time navigating the, the transactional sort of utilitarian nature of some of these tests and costs and barriers to access. And it's yeah. can be a real shame. And, you sometimes. Know, the, the question was, what were you going to get out of it? You know, right. Right. If you got, if you got a, a semester credit, did you want to skip a college course? Yeah, no. And I wasn't going to get the credit. They weren't, they're not going to give credit for that. So. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and that, that's the thing. I always wondered, why is it a selling point that you get to skip a college course? Right. You know, aren't you going to college to be exposed to great minds? You know, I mean, that's, that's like Some the people whole are, point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that and the cake part. Uh, but that's like right. the whole point, you know, I mean, but hey. Yeah. Um, uh, I always tried to be honest with people. Uh, I encouraged some kids to take it. You know? Yeah. I didn't discourage you because you couldn't do it. I knew you could do it. Mm -hmm. You know? Uh, anybody that took reading and rhetoric could do the, uh, the other, the language test. That's another, that's another class that was really formative for me. I love that yeah. class. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the point is, was it worth, you know, extending yourself? To right. Do it? Right. And, and oh, sorry. Sorry. My phone. See how technological I am. Very. <laughs> You're on. You got on Zoom. I got on Zoom. I have to. I'm laughing. You know, I. Uh, <laughs> I do Duo. You know, do that. It's no, just what's a video, that? It's an Android video calling program. Okay. I do that so I can see my grandsons. That's awesome. You know, yeah. But uh, one's in Pennsylvania and one lives here in St. Pete, but uh, we only get to see him if he comes to our house or if I have a duo call with him. So, yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, I'm, I'm amazed that teachers made it through this last year and a half. Yeah. Running on the fly. Doing three things at once, you know. In here in Florida, not only did you have to teach in the classroom, but you also had to teach online simultaneously. It was the hardest, hands down. That was the hardest thing that I had done in teaching. Yeah. yeah. And and how how many big pats on the back have you got? Uh, this is the first one. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, people take educators for granted, and uh, you know. Like, I, like right now, I'm just crazy about these moon flights or whatever they are that these millionaires are taking. They drive billionaires. me nuts. Billionaires. Yeah. They drive me nuts. I know. As to, you know, how is this productive for general society? Will billionaires make millions of jobs? Bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, Amazon workers on the average make $29,000 a year. Mm hmm and most people cannot live on $29,000 a year in major cities. Right. Yeah. You know? uh, so they're creating jobs. They're crappy jobs. You know? And, and the question is, are they creating jobs? Because if you're, you're not, if you're not creating a job that's significantly above 
what you could get on unemployment or other assistance. Like you're not, you know, if you're creating jobs below the poverty line, I don't really buy the argument that you're creating jobs. Other than Microsoft, Amazon is the highest paying mm-hmm. employer that the, these billionaires, yeah, like Musk and those guys, their employees make less mm. than 29,000, uh, which is, it's nuts. Uh, and they don't pay federal tax and they, they earn all their profit off of our infrastructure which is not getting repaired. So when, when people say to me, you know, we, we have to be, that's the direction we need to send kids, you know, uh, STEM, only STEM. Uh, you know, they've got to earn as much as possible. Uh, no, what does that say for teachers? What does it say for nurses? What does it say for cops and firefighters? All of plumbers for God's sakes. You have your toilet overflow and you tell me you don't need a plumber. Uh, right. That's the direction that education needs to go. Mm-hmm. We need to value middle America. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, and I think, I think that people, once people understood, just because I remember from my Twitter feeds and my Facebook feeds and stuff, once, once parents had a clear understanding, a, a clearer understanding of what teaching is and how much work just homeschooling was. Yeah. I, I remember sort of seeing on social media and reading, you know, reading essays and stuff in the news, people sort of had this realization of how hard teaching is and how much goes into it and how critical the school system is to our overall social infrastructure sure and i and i remember thinking to myself i'm glad that people are having this this realization about how critical it is but i have no no real optimism that when we when the pandemic's over and we transition back to the society i have i have no real uh hope in the staying power of that realization in terms of systemic change or any kind of yeah i mean I'm very tired of, of any sort of rhetoric about how important teachers are that doesn't come with money. Like if, if you aren't, if you aren't talking money or, I mean, one of my, one of my personal hot takes is time one to, if to me, to me, my test for how serious somebody is sort of about education reform. And if, if, if a person is not fully for real serious about one-to-one at least one-to-one planning to prep time then I don't really consider them to be serious um I don't I don't have that right I'm able I'm able to operate and do what I consider to be a decent job as a teacher in the classroom on on less prep time than I believe should be true for the actual profession that's that's what they do in japan yeah yeah Yeah, it's like you teach in the morning you prep in the afternoon you prep in the morning you teach in the afternoon right and i've just heard you know i've heard so many excuses and reasons for why that's sort of a moonshot request and it's unsustainable and it's at this point i'm completely turned i do not i can't engage in the conversation 
I just 100% can't take anyone serious. I'll still, I'll still participate because I like teaching, but I don't really trust that I'm sort of on the same team with anyone who is not fully on board with the idea of one-to-one planning to teaching instructional time. Um, I had that in Brooklyn and I was, you know, I was really invested in that and, and I could have, I could have seen, um, a pathway there, but you know, life kind of happens and, and you transition. Um, and I'm not saying this to sort of trash the school that I'm at now. There's, there's a, there's a lot of things that I really do love about the school. And I, I can sort of see myself sticking around at the school, um, for a while, but I, I don't know. And I'm not saying necessarily that's the breaking point, but yeah, for me, until you're, until you're fully invested in that idea, I don't really consider someone to be um, invested in teachers. <laughs> well, you know, one of the reasons I, I left in 2008 was because I couldn't do it physically the way I wanted to. Mm-hmm. And I look back now and I, I say to myself, how did you do that? Mm-hmm. I was up at 5 a.m. And I went to bed at midnight. Mm-hmm. And I worked, you know, hours at home. Every evening I worked in the morning before I went to work at the, at the school. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and I had my two kids uh, whose mom was working nights. So I had the kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, and well you have the summer man you know (laughs) i worked all summer yeah that's when i was doing a lot of my prep time Mm -hmm. was in the summer yeah and if i had a week off in the summer uh, it was glorious because i was in the school building most of the time yeah hours and hours you and and when teachers said to me well i can't uh do my job as well as i'd like to my, my question would be, are you putting in the time? Then, mm-hmm. you know, once you put in the time and you have to come to grips with the fact that it's uncompensated because mm-hmm. it really is. Mm-hmm. They're just paying you for 185 days, whatever it is, right? from, from eight to three. That's all they're paying you for. Uh, once you come to grips with the fact that all that other time is uncompensated, then you, you have to ask yourself the question. Am I invested enough to do this? Mm-hmm. And you know, where's the investment? The kids, right? You know, and uh, you know, they're the bottom line. That's what I loved about your blog early on uh, that you were writing. You know, I saw that connection with the kids. It was so strong, you know. Uh, and to this day, you know, like I, you're not the only student I talk to. Yeah. Oh, no, I know. I talked to many, many, many students. I've had some students come to my house. I've had uh, tried to help students through nervous breakdowns and failed. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, uh, my, my partner, my current, my current partner, uh, who's, who's wonderful, by the way. Uh, we've been together for 10 years. Uh, Congratulations. Yeah, she was a... Uh, well, it's not official until the fourth of August, but anyway. Okay. Uh, okay. She she taught uh, special needs kids for thirty mm-hmm. years in Florida, uh, mostly 
uh, emotionally disturbed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she would come home with bruises, broken bones, you know, the whole nine yards. And she got out as soon as she could. As soon as she hit 30 years, mm-hmm. uh, including her sick time, it was in February, <laughs> she quit, you know, because she couldn't do it. She had just gotten her wrist broken like three weeks earlier by a student slamming in at a door. Uh, she was a warrior. Yeah, know? I don't know that I would be I never had to sign up for that. <laughs> yeah, I, I never had to do anything like that. Yeah. You know? Uh, but by the same token, you know, she wanted to be a teacher badly enough that that was the path that got her a full-time job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? uh, prior to that, she was scuffling. Was it in Florida the whole time or where? Whole time yeah. 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 Uh, if you have any friends with kids that live in Florida, tell them to move and then come back after the kids are over okay. 18. All right. I'll <laughs> tell them. Yeah. Schools here are terrible. Uh, they could be worse. They could be uh, Mississippi, you know, but uh, they're, they're bad. I mean, you, you taught in, what was it Mississippi or Alabama or Arkansas? Louisiana? Yeah. Huh? Yeah. I taught in Arkansas. Arkansas. And you, you yeah. know what I'm talking about. I do know what you're talking about. I think um, I it was. I think this conversation can be challenging for me because, uh, for me, the conversation often stops at, or a lot of the times, the conversation has often stopped at. The school systems are so bad, and um, and in a lot of ways that that can be true, um, but I think basically not enough is done when people enter into those conversations i think oftentimes not a lot not enough is done to investigate why they're why they're struggling so much and to sell to celebrate like the reasons why people are working in those places and how much hard work goes into the those schools because you know um i agree agree with you you. yeah i I didn't think that you wouldn't but And, and that's why it was important that you taught there. It was, yeah. And I think it was, I'm still very close with, you know, my mentors and, and my principal who first hired me. He's now the superintendent of the district. Um, he grew up in the town. He, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very, when you think about the idea of sort of a small Southern town that's very community oriented and um, at, that's not true everywhere, but it, it is... Um, it's an important dynamic that's completely absent in, you know, in Brooklyn and where at least where I was teaching and it's very different worlds. But I do think sometimes that the rural, the failing rural school uh, is sort of this archetype that people, because the other thing that frustrates me in some of the ed reform conversations is just kind of the, I don't have a good word for it, but it's just like the hand washing or just like throwing your hands up and saying, oh, well, it's, yeah, it's terrible, but like no serious follow-up of why it's bad and what needs to happen and what needs to change. And the answer is you need to fully incentivize people to go and work in those schools and make a career there. And that's hard. I couldn't do it. I, I had to move. Um, and there's a, a lot of different pressures and stuff, but yeah, it's one um, of the solutions to that was that was put out for that was online learning. You know, mm-hmm. 
because you could have a school district with limited resources, but you could uh, band with other schools. They had this that you needed. You yeah. have this that they need. But you know what the pandemic proved? It doesn't matter. <laughs> on, on, online, on, on, yeah. Yeah. Online learning is insufficient. Oh, yeah. It's, it's insufficient. And so that was another thing that we learned in the last year and a half, two years, uh, that you really need teacher contact. Relationships, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because you can't form a relationship in a, in a Zoom class with, with 10 students, mm -hmm. you know, while the other 10 are in the classroom. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, you just can't do it, you mm -hmm. know. So it's maybe that's a good thing. Yeah. I think people I, are finding that to be true. I think that I do think, and I certainly hope that people are finding that to be true. Um, but yeah, it was, it was hard. It was very hard. And I just, I, at the end of the day, I felt bad for, for the kids. I mean, oh. I knew that my instruction was insufficient. I also knew that I was, you know, doing everything I could plus the kitchen sink to, you know, make remote learning work the best ways right. that I could. But um, right. even with operating at 150% capacity every single day, I, I knew that it was, it was not. Well, you know, you know, the other interesting thing is, you know, I know in Florida, they want 100% in school attendance. Mm -hmm. uh, New York City, de Blasio says that we have to get the kids back in school. You're hearing this across many states. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that that's all good, except I think that they want it for the wrong reason. They're Why do you say that? They don't want the kids in school for the kids' sake. They want the kids in school so the parents can go back to work. Yeah. So that, so that the buildings are not empty anymore in Manhattan. You know, <laughs> yeah. That people can go to their office yeah. and work. Yeah. Uh, and, and sure enough, that's what's, what's happening, you know. Uh, you know, they were pointing to Florida as a beacon, you know, because uh, we were completely open and we weren't any sicker than any other state. Well, we are now. Mm -hmm. One in five new cases is in Florida, you mm -hmm. know. Uh, so that was wrong. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's so hard and that they're talking about, they're fighting over whether kids should be vaccinated in order to go back to school. Mm -hmm. you know uh we we dragged our nephew all over the place he was unvaccinated uh because he was wasn't old enough to get mm -hmm. a vaccine in florida uh halfway through the trip he got sick and we had to stop and get him tested and he was negative mm -hmm. you know but uh, imagine 20 years ago or in your case 10 years ago uh you wouldn't have to do that. It wouldn't be a worry. Kid has a temperature. It's no big deal. Kid has a temperature. Give him a couple aspirin and uh, keep him in bed for the day and he'll be fine. Mm -hmm. You know? But well, we had a scuffle to get a COVID test in, uh, in uh, where the hell were we? Uh, uh, Claremont, New Hampshire. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, apparently, they had a lot of tests there. Uh, anyway. Okay. Uh, it's, I don't know what the answer is in terms of kids getting back at school. I think, I, I think they do need to be back at school. Oh yeah. But not for economic reasons. Right. Right. You know? Right. Um, like you said, relationships, uh, 
personal sanity, uh, mm -hmm. just workload for the teachers shh, comes back yeah. down again to yeah. an abnormally high rate instead of an absurdly high rate. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so listening to the conversation, one thing that uh, you've brought up a little bit that I kind of want to illustrate more is just sort of your your idea as as you look back on your career and I'm not trying to ask an unreasonably large question here, but you know I guess I guess the question that I think would I'm interested now in hearing you talk about is what in your mind makes for a great classroom. You mentioned you mentioned you know some experiences. You said it goes against everything I knew about what makes a good classroom, and the reason I would want you to talk about this is you've seen a lot of iterations you've seen a number of I'm sure different sort of fads and movements and policies and rubrics and all the things kind of come get cycled through the the education system so what to what in your mind has had real staying power in terms of either educational classroom strategy or school strategy and then yeah I, the simplest way i know how to ask the question is what what to you makes for a good classroom what's the most essential pieces to have i used to have an argument with mr hackman uh constantly constantly yeah. uh which is more important uh, uh kids or content okay yeah. And uh, I would always argue kids, and he would always argue content. And you know, his his feeling was, you know, sacrifice content. Uh, you drag the kids along, blah 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 blah. And and my argument was, you have to form a relationship with the kids in order for them to want to be dragged along. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, sometimes it's simple. Uh, I had this student, Veronica. Uh, and she was almost like reclusive in class. She barely opened her, her mouth. She wouldn't make con eye contact, nothing. You know, and I was trying to figure out a hook. How do I hook this kid? And uh, I noticed that she wore this kind of creatively interesting jacket. That it looked like it was homemade. Like, uh, uh, you know, like she put patches on it and mm -hmm. panels of cloth and things like that. It was a like Joseph's coat of uh, many colors, you know? Mm -hmm. And all I did was one day, she, she was she was always the last one out of the classroom, which to me was a clue that she wanted connection, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, so one, one day, this was a couple of weeks into the class, she's walking by me and I said, Veronica. She said, yes. And she was like, yeah. I said, I really like your coat. And I, from that day on, she was one of the best students in the class. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't that I did anything magic. Right. I humanized her. You know, mm -hmm. I humanized her. Uh, give you another example. I had this really problematic kid at a, one of my classes at Hanover. <clears throat> Most of the kids in the class were problematic. It was a comp one class and they weren't in there because they couldn't write. They were in there because the other teachers thought they were behavioral issues. And I would fight with the other teachers about that all the time. You know, 
don't give me kids that are behavioral issues. Give me kids that can't write. You know, I could work with, with the latter. So this one kid, I don't remember what provoked it. I think it was asking him to put his, open his book. And uh, I, I, is it okay to curse? Sure. Or, yeah, sure. So he, he stood up and he said, you fat oh. And I pointed my finger at him. I said, you really crossed the line when you called me fat. <laughs> and the rest of the class cracked up. You know, uh, and he stormed out because I had, I had turned the shoe. He, he was in control and then he wasn't in control anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, I wish I could say that that was a breakthrough moment with that kid, but it wasn't. He continued to be problematic uh, and he continued to act out, you know, but I at least the rest of the class, okay, saw me as, as more human, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and that was important because kids have got to know you're human. Mm -hmm. uh, they got to know you're not perfect. They got to know that you don't know everything. Say, so you're worried about your content, don't worry about it. Just if you don't know something, say, I'll look it up, you know? Or say, you know, I don't know that. Bill, you look it up, would you? And, and get back to me. I'll give you some extra credit for doing that. You know, uh, those things are important. Humanizing the face of a class, whether it's the teacher's face or the student's face, is probably the most important thing associated with class control. And I, I use the word control in a measured way because I, I don't want, want it to be like manipulation. Right. Uh, it's a contract. And, and I, I used to say this in my class, you know, and you probably heard it before, that the class is a, con is a contract. You pretend that I'm in control when you know that you are. And as long as, as, long as I'm trustworthy, you allow me to maintain control. The minute I'm untrustworthy, you take the control back, mm -hmm. you know? So it's my job, the onus is on me to be trustworthy. That does not mean that the kids always have to agree with me. I just have to be consistent and honest. And uh, I knew a lot of dishonest teachers. Yeah? Um, yeah. Uh, so some of them, I wondered why they were in the classroom because they really didn't seem to like kids very much. Hmm. You know, uh, if I were a, a you know a, a, a nurse, I would I would have to love interactions with patients. <clears throat> if I didn't, why was I doing it? You know, uh, it's true for every profession. You know, I, I had this discussion with my son. When he was in college, he declared a, a computer programming, I guess, as his major. And I said, uh, why computer programming? He said, because I'll make a lot of money right as soon as I graduate. And I said, but it's not about making money. I said, do you love doing computer programming? He said, it doesn't matter. As long as I'm making money, it doesn't matter. I said, yes, it does. Yeah. Because you're going to be in there 
eight hours a day, five days a week, mm-hmm. 50 weeks of the year. And if you yeah. don't love it, <clears throat> it's going to get painful. Mm-hmm. And uh, truthfully, he doesn't love his job. Yeah. You know, but he's found other ways to fill, fill that void that are positive. Yeah. Um, Like he really likes managing his co-op. You know, he's like an elected official of his co-op in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. And uh, he gets off on that. He likes it. He likes solving the problems. He likes uh, being the leader. Sure. And that's why we had told him, go go into something where you're going to do that. Building management, uh, the law, whatever. You know, no, no. $100,000 right out of the gate in computer science. So, no, you know, 20 something years later, it it isn't any fun for them to go to work. Right. You know, it's a, you ever read Death of a Salesman? A long time ago, yeah. Uh, Biff, the the Randy boy, the uh, the one that's can't seem to find himself, can't seem to hold a job. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he said at one point, I would never want a job uh, where I couldn't whistle in the elevator. Yeah. And that's, that's my philosophy. Uh-huh. You know, uh, I loved going to school every day. Yeah. You know, uh, even when I was, it was at its worst. Yeah. I still, I still loved it. You know, uh, I missed that part. Yeah. You know, there are lots of stuff I don't miss. The drudgery, the uh, the parents, <laughs> the, uh, yeah. you know, uh, the kids who weren't interested in learning and then 10 years later come back and say, why didn't you teach me this? You know, <laughs> yeah. I did. You might not I have did. been paying attention. <laughs> yeah, I tell you what. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, I wish every kid was motivated. Yeah. Uh, but we can't control why they're not motivated. We can't control what they ate. We can't control how they slept. Mm-hmm. We can't control how their parents treat them or if they have parents at all. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> we can't control their interactions with the other kids, some of which are the the single most devastating thing towards student motivation. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, we just can't control those. Mm-hmm. We can only control the relationship that I have with the student and the student has with me. And it's, it's 20, 30 different relationships. It's not a lot. one relationship. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I used to say to, to my uh, my friend, he said, how do you juggle it? I said, I, I don't know. Because one thing that I say may be perfect for one kid and may be a terrible mm-hmm. you know, moment for another kid. Yeah. Uh, and I, I can't always know that. I, can't. I think the way that I've sort of learned Cause that's, you know, I think that's something you recognize early on is how, is how challenging it can be to manage 
the number of individual relationships and you know how overwhelming that can be i've i've read some some psychology and and some neuroscience um papers that essentially argue that there really is a finite number of relationships that a person can have with okay like at any at any given time right like uh you only have so much soul capacity yeah and (laughs) the meta soul capacity that that they it's really just cognitive brain space like they the metaphor is like you know uh memory in, in a computer um what I'm trying to what I'm trying to get to is one of the ways that I've um, for me it, it really comes down to authenticity because you're right you can't you can't predict how your words are going to land with every single student in the room maybe some students going to think it's funny maybe some student is going to think you're lame or maybe you're going to like rub someone the wrong way by accident and I just had to sort of let there's a there was a moment for me where I was just like, you know what, I I can't worry about that. I have to make it just a conscious choice to let the kids see me as an authentic person. Um, tell them what I'm interested in, tell them a little bit about what's going on in my life and become open and honest and relatable and not get worried if you, if you get worried that the kids are going to think you're lame or not cool or whatever like you probably shouldn't be a teacher like just just be honest and be be humble and authentic with the kids and first of all you don't really want them to be cool think you're that cool like you're not really right. there to be their friend and right. it doesn't matter what the kids are interested in outside of school in terms of your relationship with them. Like, I really do believe that if you're, if you are consciously authentic and not trying to be someone you're not in the classroom over time, that for me has been the biggest way to build trust. And it sounds, it sounds simple, but I don't think it's, I don't think it's that. No, no, no. I don't think it's simple at all, but I think you're right. I think the other component is with itness, Mm -hmm. which is one of those terms that they like to throw around nowadays, but it's one that I actually think has value. You know, you've got to be aware of what's going on in your room. Yeah. You've got yep. to be aware of, of all the kids, the ones that you're not engaging with as much as the ones you are engaging with, because that's where a lot of your issues will blossom. Yep. You know, uh, and with it, this is tough. Mm-hmm. It's just tough. You know? it, it that takes yeah that does take some time and experience to to understand i can tell i can tell within three seconds just with the body language the speed that the kid walks into the room if they're making eye, eye contact or not a lot of times i can just i and i've done this before i said you just don't don't come in here like this. If, if you're having a really bad day, it's okay. What you need to do is go get a drink of water, just walk down the hall and back and then just come in, just take a breather. And, you know, I won't mark you tardy or whatever it is. And um, that that's like a quick example of, of what I think you're sort of talking about. And it's, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. it's huge. It's, there's this, 
there is the, a, a large skill set between what's on the ground happening in the classroom and what might show up on some sort of teacher evaluation rubric or whatever the case may be, you know, and um, that's the kind of day to day, that kind of stuff is constantly happening. And to me, that really is a huge part of the work of teaching. Well, yeah, one of the things I did learn while I was doing the teacher training was that sitting in the back of the room and watching the, the actions of the kids uh, is actually a better place to be than being in front of the room looking at the kids directly. Yeah. Because I'm seeing things that, that the teacher up front is missing. Yep. And, and, uh, and sometimes they're significant. Sometimes they're just little diddly squat things, you know? It's, yeah. Uh, but you, ha you have to be aware, mm -hmm. be, be conscious, you know? Uh, and it's hard, you know, it, that's really hard. And that, you're right, that's something that you learn across time. Mm -hmm. But uh, not everybody learns it. Right, right. And uh, I'm, you know, I'm glad that my, I really value a lot the two years that I spent, because uh, I spent with Teach for America, I spent two years at the back of the classroom observing, right. and right. and I'm really glad that I found my way back into the classroom, but those two years as an instructional coach doing that, uh, I think some of the best and most important yeah, things. I learned a lot more about you, I learned a lot. I learned a lot about what's going, I learned a lot about withiness. I learned a lot about, you know, I was a, I was a decent teacher at that time, but um, yeah, it, it's, you do. And it's um, the it's hardest very, thing for me when I was teacher training was to, to not feel like I had to mold them into little mini me's. Yeah. <laughs> okay. They had to do their own thing. Yeah. Uh, and that was especially tough with some of the science guys, you know, uh -huh. who were coming out of engineering or whatever, and who had this kind of flat affect and stuff. Uh, but, you know, I learned pretty quickly that I couldn't expect them to be, you know, big. They had to be small. And mm -hmm. being small was okay. As yeah. long as, as you were with it and uh, engaged in an honest way. Yeah. That's all. Yeah. yeah. I was always big. I was flamboyant. Yeah. There's um two two quick things before before we close out because I know we're we're rounding up a little bit on time. But um, okay. could you talk a little bit about so I imagine that I've probably mentioned this or told you this before, but in in at least for the podcast and and so you know now. Um, you know, I still have the uh, the letters that my parents wrote me from the Hamlet unit, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Was has been um, an incredibly powerful assignment for that I one of the most powerful assignments I ever did. I really think that was very life changing and important. So, could you talk a little bit about that specific assignment and how you came up with the idea? You'd be amazed how many parents wouldn't write a letter. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. But the whole point was, you know, uh, how do you how do you make a, a student's education real for his parents? Mm -hmm. You know, uh, what is it that they want 
their son and daughter to get out of out of their education. Could you, know? you for people who don't know, could you give some context for what the assignment was and what the details well, the, of the, the assignment was kind of like a takeoff on on Laertes speech, right, where he was giving advice to his son uh, as he was leaving, you know, and it, it contains a whole bunch of uh, aphorisms, you know, neither a borrower nor a lender be, right, to thine own self be true, blah, blah, right. blah, 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 all of which are good advice, uh -huh. you know, they're not bad advice, uh, and he kind of shuffles it off, you know, the, the son, it's like, oh, God, come on, let uh -huh. me go, you know, uh, and parents want to give their kids advice. Yeah. You know, especially as they ship them off out into the world uh, or ship them off to college or ship them off to wherever, the army, wherever. They want to give their kids advice. Uh, you know, it's got to be more than don't do what I did. <laughs> you know, so I, I uh, wrote a letter to the parents which I had you guys all bring home, mm -hmm. uh, which I had again also at open school night, uh, in case you guys didn't bring it home. <laughs> but uh, yeah, asking them to give their best advice to their son or daughter uh, who's leaving home. Yeah. And I said, you have to imagine, you have to use your imagination uh, that this could be a year from now, it could be two years from now. Uh, it could be under positive circumstances. It could be under negative circumstances. None of that matters. What matters is this is the best you can give your kid. You know, and and I, I also used it as a. The kids are giving you homework to do. Mm -hmm. You know, this is your homework for them for their class. Uh, you have to help them with this, mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to how you help them most of the time with all their other homework, you know, um, or don't help them. Right. No, that's, uh, excuse me. And, and we got some incredible responses and, and uh, sometimes the, the, the least articulate parents uh, gave the best responses because mm -hmm. they were down home and dirty, you know, mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to the, uh, the intellects in the group who are very uh, surgical mm -hmm. in their comments. <clears throat> and uh, I thought it was important to, for the kids to connect with their parents. Yeah. You know? Um, and I'm glad that you kept those letters. I'm glad that they meant something to you. Yeah. Uh, no, they really did. It was. They should. Yeah. It was, uh, it, yeah, it was a transformative moment uh, for me as a, as a young person to sort of we've talked a little bit about humanizing people and, and yeah. when you're a high schooler, you're, you don't fully see your parents as com that very complex people yet. I don't think, but that was, that was one of the things that set me on the journey of understanding more fully as an adult, you know, sort of who my parents were and, and what they wanted for me. And it was an incredible assignment. So, um, it's something that I that I've always valued and should do for myself. <laughs> should do for my own for my own class. My own. You classes. could adapt it to something else. I mean, sure. It, yeah, it works in a lot of different contexts. Yeah, I read uh, I read Tanahasi Coates Between the World and Me, uh, which is just a letter a letter to his his son, and it's um, 
I, I could do it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's ways to do it. There's, it's yeah. it's not yeah. text based, to be honest with you. Right. Right. You know, it's relationship based. Right. <laughs> and and that's important. Again, yeah, it's uh, the relationship between kids and their parents is really important. Mm-hmm. Kids who have a good relationship with their parents mm-hmm. tend to be more successful in the classroom. If they're more successful in the classroom, they're usually more successful in life. Mm-hmm. And again, I don't use the word successful uh, as, a, as an equivocancy for uh, financially. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't, you can't mm-hmm. do that. Yeah. Uh, I just had a nice conversation with her when I was in, I was in Vermont uh, for two weeks. Um, and I had this student, Anthony Simpson, uh, who was a grease hound. He loved being in the car shop. He loved fixing stuff. He was a terrible student, <laughs> English student. Okay. Uh, but he was not belligerent in any way. He knew he was a terrible English student. Mm-hmm. And I worked with him a lot to try to get him through. And we did. We got him through. And he and I have been in touch all these years later. He was a Green Mountain student. And he helped me find a good fishing hole mm-hmm. for my grandson when we were in Vermont. Because I don't fish, but my grandson lives to fish. Yeah. And and uh it was great that he cared enough to give me the information. Yeah. And to tell me why it was a good hole. Yeah, for him to fish out and whole nine yards, and he's a successful guy. You know, he's he's got his own garage. Uh, he's not rich, mm-hmm. you know. He's, he's he's but he's not dirt poor either, mm-hmm. and he's happy with himself. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important. Yeah, to be happy with himself. You know, I agree. I had a cathartic, life changing when when I got divorced after thirty years of marriage uh it was cathartic it was cathartic in my relationship with my kids it was cathartic in how i thought people viewed me Mm -hmm. it was cathartic in who i thought were my friends and who really weren't uh and it took me a while to recover uh from that uh close to two full years Mm -hmm. uh and uh and i'm recovered (laughs) i feel pretty good about myself uh, yeah. and uh, I'm still a work in progress even though I'm 70 years old uh, I think so, that's the that's the idea <laughs> yeah 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 uh, so hopefully uh, you'll still be a work in progress too I know I know um, so the last thing the way that I like to close some of these interviews is by asking you giving you the opportunity to talk about a teacher who you had uh, who really changed your life and who, uh, yeah, who really changed your life and, and who was really important to you? Well, uh, I'm going to pick a college professor. Okay. And I had in graduate school and he would never know that this was true because he and I were not close in any way, mm-hmm. shape or form. Uh, but his name was Charlie Calitri and, uh, I took his class, Existentialism in Education. And uh, it got me to look at being a teacher in a lot of different ways that I never would have looked at being a teacher before. Mm-hmm. Uh, so basically, he was the one that, you know, he, he threw our grades down a staircase. And mm-hmm. Whatever stair your, your name landed on, 
that was a grade you got and blah, 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 blah. And uh, I'll never forget his final exam. His final exam was an essay. Uh, based on what you learned in this class, uh, how would you grade yourself and why? And I took the piece of paper and I wrote, I refuse to grade myself because uh, it's, it's your reality, not mine. Uh, and I handed it in and I left like one minute into the exam. Mm -hmm. And I aced the exam. <laughs> because existentialism in, edu in education simply means that you have your universe that you're inviting these kids into and they have their universe that they're inviting you into the two are not identical but they're simultaneous uh and you're nowhere near in control as you think you are and you're nowhere out of control as you think you are uh it's i i just love charlie he was he was just so uh just crazy, <laughs> just, but he, he got me to look at being a teacher in a way I never would have looked at it, you know. Uh, I can't say I had any really super inspirational teachers in high school or, or uh, undergrad. I had teachers I liked, mm -hmm. you know, but, but no one who really changed the way I did things, mm -hmm. the way he did. Okay, yeah, absolutely. I love that story. I think uh, it's it's always interesting just to see who people pick and and why and. Um, well, I shocked myself at the risk that I took. Okay, well, it it sort of aligns though with Hackman's argument about content. Just yeah. to note. <laughs> yeah, I guess it does. Uh, <laughs> but I never said he was wrong. I just said I. Yeah. No, I, point. you know, I mean, ironically, he had great relationships with kids. He did. Yeah. I remember. I don't think I ever took great relationships with kids. I don't think I ever, cause he taught philosophy, right? Yeah. I don't think I ever took um, a philosophy class with him in high school, but I, I remember him. I, and I remember that I remember all my classmates really loving his classes and, and getting a lot out of it. So yeah. Um, Mr. Bonfiglio. Thank you so much. This has been uh, a great way to reconnect. And, and I appreciate not just the model that you set for me in high school uh, as a teacher and your classes, but, you know, staying in touch and, and still learning and uh, talk a little bit about one thing I have been following before we close out. Talk a little bit about your, your music scene that you got going on in Florida. How's that going? Well, it's not going anywhere right now. Because <laughs> you know, most of the venues I play at are closed. Okay. Um, I, I have recorded four albums and yeah. I, I get a lot of radio airplay, mm -hmm. uh, which is, which is nice. It's, you know, it's, uh, makes you feel good. Where could uh, people find your music if they wanted to engage? Just, uh, they can just, uh, contact me directly on Facebook. I'm just doing like direct sales right now because, uh, you don't make enough money doing the, doing it the other way. Yeah. The other okay. Way. You know, like if I sell an album on uh, on Amazon, I only make like ten cents on a dollar. Mm -hmm. But if I sell it myself, I make a hundred percent less postage. Right. <laughs> uh, 
that's the way I like to do it. And, you know, I, I, I uh, it's just, it's, it's uh, gratifying to know that, you know, you write songs, people, people like them. I've been recorded by other artists. Mm -hmm. uh, a number of my songs, one of my songs was uh, recorded by a German band called uh, Sherman Noir and the Midnight Surfers, <laughs> uh, which is crazy. Uh, but I've actually become friends with Sherman. He's a, he's a cool guy. Yeah. Uh, and uh, was one way that I, you know, I talked to you about that cathartic experience after my divorce. It was the way that I, I created a new society mm -hmm. for myself uh, of people who with similar interests, you know, who aren't teachers, you know, yep. even though I ended up with one. Uh, but, uh, but you know what I mean? It was, it was yeah. good to have a, a cadre of, of friends, right? you know, and, uh, it's, it's amazing how many Facebook friends I have. It's, a, you know, so anyway, to make a short story long, I, I do post music every day on Facebook, uh, okay. but I also, I have a, a thing called, uh, what's it called? Reverb Nation. Mm -hmm. R-E-V-E-R-B-N-A-T-I-O-N dot com slash Jill D. All right. And I have like 200 songs there that you could download. You don't get the uh, the studio versions. You just get the rough versions, the ones I, I record on my own to prepare for the studio. Sure. Yeah, I'll uh, when we publish this, I'll I'll make sure that people can find find your information and and all the episode links and everything. So okay, cool. hopefully people will buy you know buy and, some and the of guy music. That, the guy that's my engineer recorded uh, Pink Floyd's "The Wall." Oh yeah. So, so he's retired in Florida too. I love that. That's 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 a life changing album for me. I love that yeah, album. Yeah, yeah, he's a great guy, Benny Rogers. Awesome. So awesome. Anyway, all right. Thank well, you, Jim. thank you. This was this was uh, wonderful. I, you know, these kinds of conversations are really important to me, but especially uh, great to have it with you as as my former teacher and now as a teacher myself. So I really do. I appreciate the time. Um, and anytime you're up, in, I will. I will. And anytime you're up in Boston, uh, let me know, and I'll maybe we can connect. Okay. See what happens. Yeah, I'm and I'll do the same for there soon, But I yeah. am going to, um, next year is my, what is it, 50th college reunion. Oh, and yeah. I'm going to go, I'm going to go to my reunion and uh, Diane wants to do the cliff walk in Newport. And we're going to okay. stay, stay for a few days. Uh, my friend has a beach house in Warwick and uh, yeah. we're going to stay there and it'll, it'll be good. This is my, all my roommates. Nice. That's wonderful. Yeah. All right, kid. Uh, all right. I well, sign off with this thing. Do you? I'll just, no, I'll just end the meeting and, and we're okay. all set. So uh, I appreciate yeah. it. Thank you so much. Stay well. You too. All right.